Welcome back to Insights Now. I'm Stephanie Aliaga, Research Analyst at JPMorgan Asset Management. And on this episode, I'll be interviewing David Kelly, the usual host for this podcast, on the outlook for the markets and the economy in 2024. So it's clear this year had no shortage of surprises for investors, from strong returns in stock markets to the impressive resilience of the U.S. economy. Along the way, we've confronted all sorts of shocks. A new war in the Middle East, Washington dysfunction, even higher interest rates, while the labor market and consumer have seen continued strength. And as we look to 2024, there's cause for both concern and optimism. A soft landing is still in view, but there's a number of risks that could potentially divert us from that path. Our team recently released our year-end investment outlook under the same title as this episode. And today, who's better to share those insights than our own chief global strategist, Dr. David Kelly himself? Now, most of our listeners are probably listening to this podcast on the go while they're driving or cooking, which is great. But for those of you who are visual people, we also have a YouTube channel with video recordings of all of our podcasts. So we've linked that channel as well as our 2024 outlook in the show notes for you. Finally, this episode also marks the last one for the season, but we will be back early next year with a whole new theme and slate of guest speakers. So please stay tuned. Now let's get started. David, thank you for joining me today. I'm very glad to be here. So Plenty of questions on investors' minds as we look towards the new year, celebrate the holiday season. Um, and it seems like there's some you know, deja vu when we think about the questions we're asking this year. Mm-hmm. Last year, we were also thinking about the potential risk for a recession. It seemed elevated as we look towards the new year. And we had a year where resilience seemed to be the kind of common theme. Um, looking towards next year, you know, how are the different pieces of the economic pie looking? Do you think we can repeat the strength that we've seen this year, or is it perhaps a bit rockier ahead? I, I don't think we'll see quite the same strength in terms of economic growth. I mean, when this year wraps up, I think we'll be close to 3% year-over-year real GDP growth by the time we get the fourth quarter in the door. And I don't think we're going to be able to do that going forward. Uh, we've seen a slowdown in the growth of payroll employment. But on the other hand, it's we have seen this big fall in inflation, and inflation is much less of a threat or concern than it was a year ago, so it's it's kind of like if if you're if you're actually coming in for a landing on a plane and on a windy day, uh, when you're ten thousand feet uh, up in the air, it's pretty rocky. As you get closer to the runway, it does get a little smoother. So we do expect growth to be slower um, this year, but we still think there's a good chance that we avoid recession altogether. Some shock could put us in in, in a recession, but overall the economy looks reasonably well balanced uh, as we enter twenty twenty four. Well, that's a great note to, to, there's a lot of pieces of that I want to dive into as well. Um, you know, in particular, so we see, you know, growth slowing down, but it's still looking pretty solid. How much of that is owed to the resilience in the U.S. consumer? Like, well, how how are things looking for them in the year ahead? A lot. I mean, the, the consumers are always the, the, the most important part of the U.S. economy. It's, it's more than two-thirds of total spending. And what we saw this year is, we had a reduction, obviously, over the last few years. We had a decline in all this this uh, COVID age. People spent through their savings, or at least a lot of households did. Some of the richer households may not have done, but most households did spend through their, their COVID aid. We had a resumption of student loan payments. Uh, we had banks, certainly earlier on in, in this year, worried about credit uh, with with higher interest rates and with a mini banking crisis. So I think the prediction was that, could, that someone was going to pull the reins on consumers and they were not going to be able to spend. What we've actually seen is that consumers have continued to spend. Uh, we've, the saving rate is still looking very low, down at 3.7% for 
for the month of October. Um, so it seems that consumers are still willing to spend perhaps beyond the limits of prudence. I think in a lot of cases, maybe people should stop spending, but they're not going to. I mean, these are Americans uh, and we're, <laughs> we're going to keep spending on yeah. something that actually physically takes a credit card away. And so that's really been the, the key source of growth in this economy. There hasn't been much really dragging us into recession, but I think the resilience of consumers, the fact that we've gone from, you know, even when we're in a gloomy mood, where we seem to be willing to spend money uh, that we don't have uh, on stuff maybe we don't need, but the will our willingness to do that has allowed consumer spending to grow um, at a better than 2% pace during this year. And that has helped, I think, really sustain this expansion. Yeah. We've just wrapped up the kind of uh, Black Friday season and mm -hmm. early reports were just that, you know, blockbuster spending. And mm -hmm. seems like inventory's back on the shelves. Firms are maybe like bringing back discounts and stuff and consumers are eager to... to... Well, and, and particularly online. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I think is... Very, uh, I was looking at some of the numbers on year-over-year -year numbers on online spending. And then you say, well, you've got to subtract out inflation. But if you actually think about it, inflation in core goods, which is what this is... yeah. It's pretty much zero year over year. Yeah. That, that's not where there's, I mean, what inflation remains are in things like services and shelter, in uh, you know transportation services, exactly. Yeah. But if you look at the stuff that people buy for the holiday season, there isn't really much of a price increase year over year. So the fact that nominal sales are up so much really does speak to a lot of strength in consumers. Absolutely. And I also want to talk about the labor market. So the labor market has been a really bright spot for the economy this year. You mentioned things are slowing down, right? Payroll job growth is slowing down. How low are we going to get in payroll job growth? Like, could we potentially dip negative? Like, is this a linear line downwards? Or are we normalizing? We'll find this like steady state to a kind of like, you know, fifty to a hundred payroll job gains per month. Like, what does that look I th like? I think I think we could average a little bit better than that. I mean, we might average a hundred to hundred fifty thousand jobs per month, at least in the first half of the year. But it, it, I think the trend will slow down. But you raise a very, very good point because it's quite possible it'll dip negative. And I'll tell you one reason for that. There is a lot of seasonal pattern to job growth. Mm -hmm. And that seasonal pattern was established long before the pandemic and then was altered and distorted by the pandemic. And now maybe something quite different. Mm -hmm. So if your seasonal factor is looking for 800,000 jobs to be added, and then just because of some structural change in the economy, we actually had a pretty good month, but actually jobs only grew by 750,000, then seasonally adjusted that comes in as comes in at a negative 50. So that's not so noticeable when job growth is 300, 400,000 every month. Yeah. But when uh, when job growth gets down to 100 to 150,000 per month, uh, as I think it's going to get in 2024, the danger of having a negative payroll read is quite high. Yeah. I wouldn't overemphasize that if that occurs. I think you I think you really have to take that with a big grain of salt and look at the overall mo mosaic in the labor market to see do we still have momentum? But I think it's quite possible we'll see a negative payroll number in the next 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the seasonal adjustment of economic data has been particularly difficult, right? It was last year we had two quarters of negative GDP growth. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we could see some noise in some of the economic data as we kind of slow things down here. But overall, the overall picture still looks Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think you just have to look at overall momentum. And yeah. you know, that, that's why, uh, correctly, the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at a lot of different indicators when they try to figure out are we having a recession or not? And I think bro broadly speaking, those indicators collectively yeah. may not say recession in 2024 yeah. either. Yeah. And when the Fed looks at the labor market, they're particularly looking at wage growth, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen wages decelerate, um, normalize a bit. They also you know, peaked to really strong levels in the post-pandemic recovery. Where do you see that going? Do you think that the more like 
chronic labor shortage issue that we've had coming out of the pandemic is going to last a a little bit and keep wages elevated? Or do you think we're pretty much going to come back to normal on that? Well, I think wage growth could, you know, I think it'll take a long time for wage growth to get to low levels. And I don't really want to see wage growth get to low levels. Um, Me neither. (laughs) No, but but I think the... uh, there are still shortages of labor, but what we've seen is businesses are very determined not to overpay. Mm-hmm. And what what you see in survey after survey is they're not going to hire somebody not because they cost too much, but they just don't think they can do the job. And there and in the pool of unemployed people, there's a lot of labor that's really not very high quality. And so I think a lot of businesses are trying to say, well, okay, how else can we expand? And I and I think I think you're seeing a lot of businesses really strive to achieve stronger productivity growth because they know they can't hire the people they want. But meanwhile, if you look at the, you know, when you talk about wage growth itself, it really is a matter of a power struggle between employees and employers. Mm. And one of the hallmarks of the American economy in the 21st century is that employers actually have a lot of power and employees don't. And uh, what we've seen, we did, we have seen some strikes so far through October, we had about 24 major strikes, uh, up from 23 major strikes uh, for all of last year, uh, but still, that is a that's a very pale reflection of what we had back in the 1970s, where we had more than 200 strikes every single year. Yeah. Um, so it's it, we still don't have that much strike activity, we don't have that much unionization. I think workers generally, uh, we see benefits are going up by less than wages. So I think companies are doing a good job on holding down compensation costs, even in a tight labor market. I think that's probably where we're going to be, because if the economy is slowing down, if people are still worried about well, maybe a recession at some stage. I think businesses are going to be able to hold the line labor costs. I think they're going to be very determined to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's an interesting point that you raised on just the supply-demand mismatch when Mm -hmm. it comes to workers in the economy right now. Maybe we don't see that Jolt's job openings figure come all the way back Mm -hmm. down, but is that a true measure of the slack in the labor market, or are we reaching this kind of, you know, structural end um, to, you know, the, that supply-demand balance that we can... Well, well that's right. I mean, if you've got a lot of supply-demand imbalance and you're going to end up with a lot of jobs that can't be filled and a lot of people who can't be employed. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we are in America yeah. today. Especially with immigration still not, not doing well, that much. Yeah, I mean, well, immigration obviously is a very controversial subject. We have seen some, some increase in the number of legal immigrants. Uh, if you look at the number, you know, we, one of the things I check every month is just the number of people apply or being granted work visas in the United States, and that has been going up substantially relative to where it was over the pandemic. So we're back, we're actually above pre-pandemic levels in, in that. So we are bringing in workers, but still, it's not enough to make you know to fill the gap in terms of job openings. Right. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit um, to talk about the Fed. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming up, um, we have the last Fed meeting of the year. It seems like you know. Everyone's expecting that the Fed is pretty much done yep. hiking rates now, finally, mm-hmm. right? Um, but what does it look like looking to next year on the kind of psychology that the Fed has right now in landing the plane? They have this opportunity to, right, mm-hmm. avert a recession. How are they going to approach rate cuts? Do you think that the market might be a little ahead of themselves and thinking that that could be a first quarter, second quarter reality? Or do you think they're going to hold the line on getting inflation down to two percent before they really ease up. It's like it, it, I don't know if you have a, have a friend like this, but who's always late, and they will promise you and swear blind they're going to be on time this time because they know how important it is, and you know they're going to show up late. And I the Fed's kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Fed the Fed tends to take its time 
both in raising rates, they wait too long and then they do too much. Yeah. And then they probably wait too long on the, on the, on the way down. Um, a few months ago, Chairman Powell was asked at one of his press conferences, if the economy is still growing, but inflation heads towards 2%, and you know that you've got a tight monetary policy, will you bring rates back down to normal? And he said, yes. Yeah, if, if we're, if we're you know, solidly moving towards 2%, then we will do that. I just don't believe that they'll do that. I think that, I think that they'll, they will find reasons to hesitate mm. to pull the trigger on rate cuts unless the economy is actually showing weakness. Now, I, that doesn't mean we get no rate cuts next year. I think we will... I think we'll certainly get one unless something's wrong with this economic forecast uh, altogether. So I think we'll certainly get one by the end of the year. And we might get some rate cuts starting, say, in the third quarter. But I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for the Federal Reserve to, to, to cut rates yeah. um, because just traditionally they have they've fa they found reasons not to do the thing that they ought to do or to, to, to hesitate. And I think that's probably what we're going to get. Yeah. We have seen the Fed give insurance kind of rate cuts in the past. And then we've had, you know, the Volcker Fed, right? That one just was a, a very strongly um, uh, hawkish when it comes yeah. to inflation. Do you do you think that the Fed is more just like? I, I think the I think the Federal Reserve they I think they took it personally. Yeah. When when inflation got out of hand, and honestly, yeah. you know, it's, it's it's kind of like the 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 line from Goodwill Hunting. It's not your fault. I mean, yeah. you've got to believe this. It's yeah. not your fault. It wasn't the Fed's fault that rate that inflation took off. That was because of the pandemic the fiscal policy response in Ukraine. But the Fed took it personally. They felt that they had to be, that, that somehow they'd missed the boat, that their right. forecasts were all wrong. And so they had to take responsibility for getting inflation down. And I think that is the mindset they have, which is really interesting because that's so different from what it was yeah. uh, before the pandemic. But that's their mindset today. Um, and I think that that will cause them to, to, to sort of hesitate to cut rates um, when, they, when they probably should. Now, having said that, perversely, I'm not really looking forward to the day that we get an insurance rate cut because I don't think there's such a thing as an insurance rate cut. Mm. One of the most dangerous things the Federal Reserve will have to do, the most dangerous part of a soft landing is, is when, the, when the Federal Reserve cuts rates and messaging that. Because if they cut rates to say, look, we're just cutting rates a little bit today because the economy is fine, um, but we think inflation's come down a little bit. That may be what they said. Yeah. What people will hear is, we cut rates today because we're scared of recession. And the moment that recession psychology gets going, then the rate cut yeah. is actually absolutely counterproductive. Yeah. Uh, because people will expect more rate cuts, they'll hold off until they get lower rates, and they're going to be scared about a recession. Yeah. So they've got to they've got to communicate that very, very carefully. Absolutely. Yeah, the communication will be key. Mm -hmm. um, and so I also want to talk about, you know, what we've seen in the markets this year. Um, so the economy hasn't been the only thing that's surprised everyone in the resilience, right? U.S. stock markets and particularly, you know, mega cap tech have also surprised mm -hmm. many. Um, what do you think the outlook is for U.S. equity markets going into next year? Um, earnings resilience has also been a big part of the story this year. Do you think, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, that like corporate America can hold the line and like next year is doing enough to kind of um, maneuver in a slowing economy? Well, well let's talk about earnings and, and, and rates first yeah. and the sort of fundamentals. And then let's talk about what the market has actually been doing. So I feel pretty good about the the fundamental outlook going forward. Uh, you're right. I mean, companies have been very resilient in terms of earnings. Uh, most companies, almost 80% of companies, surprisingly upside in terms of earnings in the third quarter earnings season, despite the fact that there's only a, a bare majority of companies surprised on, on the revenue side. Mm -hmm. What's happening is companies are are seeing revenue growth slow, and that's that's a problem, but they're being very creative 
in making sure that they that they hold they keep margins high. And an American, you know, I've always admired the will- willingness of American consumers to spend money they don't have. And I've also always admired the ability of American corporations to find ways of squeezing all their suppliers to keep margins high mm. and and squeeze workers to do that. And I think that's uh, that that's what I think you'll see companies do. So I feel pretty good about the earnings outlook, particularly if we have a moderate growth environment. And I feel good about the rate outlook, even if the Fed takes its time. So long as inflation's coming down, I think that will help uh, get, get us some reduction in long-term interest rates. So I feel pretty good about that. So that would sound like a pretty good environment for equities. And I think it should be. But what's interesting in 2020, you could say a lot of that about 2023. And what happened was a small group of stocks did extraordinarily well, yeah. and a very large group of stocks didn't do very much at all. Mm-hmm. And that could continue. You could see that divergence continue for as long as you have a bull market in equities. But we advise long-term investors. And the problem is that sooner or later, the economy is going to stub its toe, and the market's going to stub its toe. And when that happens, when you have a, a serious bear market, then that divergence in valuations tends to collapse because people really worry about, you know, once they actually get scared, what is it that I own? That I own? And they look at this this stock which has got no earnings or is, or is priced at 60 times, then they get scared about that. And, they, and they, they turn more conservative in their investing behavior. So at some stage, this gap, I think, is going to close. I, I'm not praying for it because usually that occurs in a bear market. But for a long-term investor... I think we're moving into an environment, actually much like what we had 10 years ago. I think we're moving into an environment of low inflation, slow growth, good margins, which will be basically supportive of equities overall. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, that rates should be coming down. Uh, what do you think that that means for the yield curve and bond markets more generally, right? Going into this year, mm-hmm. it was like, this is supposed to be the year for bonds. We saw a lot of flows into bonds, but the performance hasn't exactly been maybe what some people were expecting this year yet. Well, that's right. We've got a little bit of back, back uh, obviously, with, with long-term rates coming down um, at the end of this year. I think we may see some further declines in long-term rates, but I think bigger declines are going to have to wait for actual Fed rate cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not praying for that because that's probably a bad economic environment when that occurs. Uh, but I think even in the absence of rate cuts, you could you, maybe you'll get a 25 basis points or a quarter percent reduction in long-term interest rates. I think you can make some some money out of that, but I, I think you do need to see that 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 reduction in short rates. What I do think it means, though, is you're going to have this continuation of an inverted yield curve. Yeah. And just don't be scared by that, because what, what the last two years have clearly shown us is an inverted yield curve does not predict an imminent recession, mm-hmm. nor does the index of leading economic indicators for that matter. So yeah. I think we will end up with perhaps an even slightly more inverted yield curve at, at in the first half of this year as people begin to anticipate those rate cuts, we don't actually get them. Yeah. Um, and as inflation continues to move towards 2%. Uh, so I think you'll see that inversion of the yield curve. I think uh, you'll get decent gains on long-term fixed income. Uh, but I think any significant capital gain long-term fixed income is going to have to depend on the economy falling into recession on, on high-quality fixed income. And as I say, I'm not, not really praying for that. Mm-hmm. And so one other potential wild card next year is that we do have a U.S. presidential yep. election, right? Um, how do you think invest- investors should prepare or consider the risks of you know, a potential Trump re-election or a Biden, um, you know, uh, re-election? Like what what does the balance of risks look like? How could that change the outlook? Well, people have got very strong political views and they're entitled to them. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we try to help people with investment advice rather than political advice. Mm-hmm. The one thing that, though, I think history has consistently shown is, it, well, really two things. One, the American economy has succeeded in growing 
and the stock market has succeeded in going up, regardless of configuration in Washington. You know, if it's all Republican control or all Democratic control, or as often as the case, if you've got divided government, both economic growth and stock market performance uh, has, you know, on, on average been positive, um, which tells me that this economy doesn't really run off the wisdom emanating out of Washington. It really it sort of kind of runs itself. So we shouldn't overstate the importance of this. The second thing, though, is people should not hesitate to invest because of how they feel about politics. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's a hard thing to, to, to swallow. But the truth is that, and we've seen polls on this, we know that Republicans felt much worse about the economy than Democrats did under President Obama. Mm. And Democrats felt much worse about the economy than Republicans did under President Trump. And so you had that big switch in sentiment. But we also know that people hesitate to invest when they feel badly about the economy. But the third thing we know is that, in fact, the stock market did very well under both President Obama and President Trump. So the, the message is just, you know, if you look at the lessons of history, don't let how you feel about politics overrule how you think about investing. A very important reminder. Thank you, David. Um, and as we wrap up, is there any other last piece of advice that you would like to give to investors as, you know, we prepare for the new year, reevaluate existing positions, you know, think about where the opportunities are and where they want to maybe take a little less risk going forward? Well, I think that there are a few things. Um, first of all, I think you need to have a balanced view of where, we're, where we are and where we're going. Uh, if, you, if you have the opportunity to turn off cable TV and get rid of your social media feed, it's probably a good idea as an <laughs> investor. Um, beyond that, I think it's important to look at valuations. We've had this sort of euphoric market in, in the stock market for many years, actually, in the United States, but it has led to some divergence. And there's divergence within the U.S. market and there's a divergence between the U.S. market and international markets, which are a lot cheaper. Mm. But in the long run, valuations really do matter. Yeah. So it's very important to be diversified. Don't just uh, you know, put, a, you know, put a large uh, share of your eggs in the large cap, high, you know, mega cap stock basket just because they've done well. I think it's important to be very well diversified. And the last thing is don't overweight cash. Um, because yeah. because when we we've seen an enormous pileup of money in money market funds, and I know some of that has to do with well you know higher interest rates on on checking accounts or savings accounts or or, or you know interest bearing checking accounts, but a lot of it has to do with long term money which is sitting in short term accounts because people say well you make five percent why should I worry and that's fine but history repeatedly shows that if that when you're at a peak in CD yields or a peak in the yields of money market funds. Um, over the next 12 months, almost always something else does does better. Yeah. And generally speaking, unless you've got overvaluation, and we don't, you know, the bond market overall is not overvalued, the stock market overall is not overvalued. Unless you've got that broad overvaluation, long-term money ought to be in long-term assets. So so be a little bit, bit brave, be a little bit disciplined, uh, but make sure that long-term money is invested for the long run. Well, thank you so much, David. That is a great way to end uh, this episode. Um, and thank you to everyone for tuning in today. This wraps up our episode um, and our eighth season of Insights Now. Um, but we will be back with you soon. As I mentioned, we will have a new season and a whole new slate of guest speakers out early in the new year. Well, thank you very much. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. 
the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.